Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Welcome to the Russ Podcast. Yes, today, a lot of brilliant brothers. Mm-hmm. We're talking about race. We're talking about politics. We're talking about the Chauvin trial. We're getting to all of it. Let's go ahead and get it started. His name is Dr. Jason Johnson, a very brilliant brother. He's a uh, political journalism um, professor at Morgan State, an MSNBC contributor, also a contributor for the Grio. And I, I have to say, first of all, man, it's uh, really great to have you on. Uh, everybody's been talking about the verdict that happened in the Chauvin trial. I have to tell you, man, I was not optimistic at all about it. I was concerned. Uh, were you? Well, no, Russ, you know, I said all along, and it doesn't give me, like, tremendous pleasure, but I said all along I thought the Chauvin was going to end up being convicted because it was like a cultural makeup call, right? I mean, e- even even the most dangerous, problematic systems occasionally throw out a sacrificial lamb in order to keep the natives from getting too restless. As racist as that phrase is, there's a reason I'm using it. You know, Derek Chauvin was going to be the one lone bad apple that American policing threw out there, that our justice system threw out there to say, see, look, the system works, the system works, because you can talk about him rather than having an overall discussion of what's wrong with American policing, the need for abolishing American policing. And we see the example of that because not just that we see two or three other instances of police harassment and brutality during the trial, but literally the same day, you have a 16-year-old girl in Columbus, Ohio, get shot in broad daylight by a cop within an hour after that ruling. So, you know, I, I'm not surprised, but I'm also not going to be surprised when the woman who killed Dante Wright, uh, when the other officers who were involved in protecting Derek Chauvin when he was strangulating George Floyd, I won't be surprised when those people get off. Yeah, because I'm wondering, um, don't they have any culpability in this? Um, they did nothing to try to revive him or anything. Are, are they supposed to go to trial or did they get just get off scot-free? No, no. So a couple of them are supposed to go to trial. Um, we still have a trial for the men who killed Ahmaud Arbery. Um, you know, there will be a trial for uh, the woman who killed Dante Wright. I mean, there's going to be trials for these people. But again, history suggests that a lot of those people are going to get off. Um, history suggests that they're going to use whatever resources are at their disposal. Because, you know, again, what we saw with George Floyd is it takes a man being murdered caught on camera, viewed by the entire planet, a year's worth of protests, you know, and then 27 other cops saying, yeah, I think he was wrong too, in order for one man to get convicted. And when you don't have that level of evidence in all these other instances, we have seen that consistently and repeatedly, our justice system does not treat black lives like they matter. So the blue wall is still up and strong. You agree with that, right? Oh, you look, look it, it's a blue wall, it's a phalanx, it's a Lego wall, it's a Lincoln block wall, it's it's Red Rover, Red Rover, you can't break over. I mean, like, you know, the police have not radically changed how they operate, which is why, like I said, you have to abolish modern day policing. The fact that other officers were able to come forward and say, yes, the fact that Chauvin's uh, supervisor was able to come out and say, yes, he did this wrong, you know, it's mitigated by the fact that, again, 10 minutes up the road in Minnesota, you see an officer kill Dante Wright 
you know, in broad daylight. And what's the first thing that her police chief comes out and says? He's like, I think it was a mistake. I think it was an accident. I mean, that's the first thing that these other officers are saying. So, you know, this blue wall is working perfectly fine. And, and every other officer around America who is engaging that level of violence that day, that time, and furthermore, knows that nine times out of 10, they'll be backed up by their bosses and the police union, regardless of what the video camera says. Well, you're, you specialize in so many things because I think you're a brilliant guy. Um, on the political end, you had to know that Biden had two speeches. First of all, I just say, I want to say it was refreshing to know that we had a president that was actually going to speak to a situation to calm this country. But mm-hmm. that could have been a powder keg. Uh, when uh, I took some heat because I said Maxine Waters should have chilled out for a minute and mm-hmm. before she made her comments. I do understand her anger. I understood her intent. But you have to understand, right. you can inspire people with your words, whether you mean for them to take to the street and conf- confront police officers. I'm, my position is, let's just not give them any excuse. You know, because that's what this is, just any excuse. And I, I didn't want that to happen. I, I, the thing is, Russ, like, they're going to do what they do anyway. I mean, it, it, you know, that's how racism operates. Racism sort of tricks us into thinking that if we if we behave well, if we control ourselves, if we do this or that, it'll change, and it won't. I mean, we're dealing with a situation where it's like, hey, if you keep your hands in your pockets, they won't shoot you. Well, that didn't happen to Philando Castile. If you act nice, if you're polite, if you you know, no, that didn't happen to Elijah McClain. You know, the thing about white supremacy is it tricks its victims into thinking that we have control over the arbitrary. Uh, snuffing out of our lives. Mm. Maxine Waters could have been quiet. There was going to be some other black person that they use as an excuse, that the judge in this case tried to use as an excuse. So, you know, I'm happy that Biden had something. To, I'm happy that he let Vice President Harris speak first. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, the George Floyd Policing Act, from what I read, doesn't prevent things like George Floyd being killed. It would simply have created consequences that you hope would have led to different actions that day. But let us be clear. You can say a chokehold is illegal. You can say you have to keep data. You can get rid of qualified immunity. It still doesn't stop a Derek Chauvin from killing George Floyd in broad daylight if that's what he feels like doing. And if there weren't a 17-year-old young lady there taking video of it, I promise you he would have gotten off scot-free. And as I've said before, given the lack of value given to black lives, if that man had put a knee on a golden retriever's neck for nine minutes, mm. oh, he they'd have thrown him under the jail. Yeah. And you know what was amazing to me? You could look at his eyes. He was shocked that he was found guilty. Oh, yeah. I could see shock. He actually thought he's going to get off. The defense oh, was he, poor. He, he thought there's going to be one person that didn't value black lives that was going to side with them, and that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was shocked. Um, you know, it was one of those like, but wait a minute, I'm a straight white man. I How am I going to be held accountable? And let's be honest, you know, Derek Chauvin had every reason to believe that he was going to get off. I, I mean, history suggests that he was going to. But like I said, occasionally there is a sacrificial lamb, uh, you know, in order to make sure that the system can still operate. Because had this man gotten off, and you talk about this with Joe Biden, had he gotten off, had there been no consequences? I'm not talking about simply protests in the street. I'm saying that it would have made it so impossible for Democratic politicians to drag their feet 
on criminal reform and criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I mean, they, w- they would have had new policy by Tuesday. Yeah. And that's, and trust me, I've spoken to members. They're, they're already kind of working on things now. Um, but yeah, he didn't think the system was going to actually hold him accountable. And, and to be fair, punish him. He hasn't mm-hmm. really been held accountable. Absolutely. Political um, uh, science journalist and a professor at Morgan State, MSNBC uh, contributor, also contributor to the Grill. Uh, Dr. Jason Johnson, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Russ. Anytime. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jason Johnson, it's always great talking with him. Up next on the Russ Podcast, Charles M. Blow. Let me go ahead and introduce him. We have an extraordinary individual. I absolutely love his work. I think he's absolutely brilliant. He is a uh, acclaimed journalist and an op-ed columnist uh, for the New York Times. And you see him on CNN all the time. I know every time I see Charles Blow go up there on the train, I'm going like, I'm getting ready to get an education here. And I'm excited about uh, your, your new book, uh, The Devil You Know. This, I, I haven't, I've gotten through the first couple of chapters. I'm just going to keep it real with you. Okay. Um, okay. I did read uh, Fire Shut Up in My Bones uh, about a year mm-hmm. or so ago. Just the passion in which and how you wrote that book, uh, just the brutal honesty. I, I just loved it, especially coming from a brother, man. But I, I just want to say I think you're absolutely incredible. And I was just re- reading your, uh, you know, they sent out, they always send us a little briefing uh, about the author. But this book right here, The Devil You Know, you didn't want to write a book on race, they say. Why is that? Well, I'm not a historian. So I didn't want to write a history book. I couldn't do that. There are people who do that far better than I do. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are there's a genre in which people like me do write, which is uh, kind of racial context analysis uh, of ra- the racial problem and uh, another way of diagramming the racial problem. But it, sem- it seemed to me that too much of that was very talented Black people writing books to white people about Black people. Mm. But they weren't writing those books to me. I already knew everything was in those books. You know, I, I, I already knew how to consider what was happening to me. You, 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 made, you, you found a more poetic phrasing for the thing that we all knew as black people. And the white people stood and clapped for you. Mm. Let, let me ask I, you. I didn't want to be part of that. I got you. Let me ask you. Uh, we're talking to Charles Blow. It's a wonderful writer. How do you respond to people saying, he's just emotional and angry because I get that sometimes when I talk about how we have been done, how you're trying to paint yourself out to be the victim now, but all of a sudden I'm emotional and I'm angry. Do you ever get that? And if, if so, how do you respond to that? You know, I, you know, I make it, I don't know. Like I, I, you know, cause I write from home. Uh, I curate my circle of friends. So that it's just, you know, affirmations and, you know, uh, good feelings and people celebrating people. So maybe it's coming online and I'm just not paying attention to it mm-hmm. uh, uh, as much. But also just on the on the fact of the question, who can blame black people for being angry? Yes. The, 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 fact, the fact that black people haven't burned this place to the ground is a testament to our patience and our resilience uh, uh, and our ability to try to continue to see the best in this place. Mm. You know, I, I don't advocate violence or, 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 or rioting or any of that. I, it's, it's always, a, you know, a negative return on that. But 
you you dig into it even ever so slightly, just scratch the surface of the history of this country, and it becomes infuriating. Mm. You know, one of the things that I'm I'm starting to notice is that the lack of intellectual prowess of some of some white folks, and this is not applicable to all white folks, and if you don't wear these shoes, don't put them on. But it seems to me, when I looked at that insurrection, and I hate to say this, but I'm just going to keep it real, I saw a bunch of mouth breathers. I saw people, and, and now it's starting to come out that a lot of those people never voted, and they're fighting to keep somebody in power for somebody they never voted for. I find that smarter people are using their intellect as a weapon against the ignorant to motivate them. And I think that's what's happening with a lot of these white guys that are in the street saying, uh, uh, it's not fair, things are wrong. When you've had all the opportunities, you didn't take advantage of it. So now when the milk is almost out of the bottle, now you want to like, oh, I'm, I'm aggrieved. I, I, I have a problem because you're doing so many things for minorities. Do you think that's accurate? Do you think that, that well, smarter people are taking advantage the of the, the, the electoral, intellectually deficient? The, the mind class has always used, tried to rile up uh, the, the poor white people and, and aim them as a weapon against black people. The last thing they wanted to do was for poor black people and poor white people to, to find common cause and say, oh, you know what, these guys are screwing all of us. Yes. So they, they, so they basically uh, told the poor white people uh you may be poor but you're not black mm. that that your whiteness has an inherent value uh that 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 makes you better than the black person even if you have the same income or the same level of poverty and no. and by valuing whiteness itself and and teaching people that they should value that whiteness itself and also that that your position as or it could be transient if you were white because you could graduate into wealth. That became the cleaving point. You know, what's interesting is that there's so many folks that put their lives on the line, um, lost their life, uh, fighting for a man that is a classist. And I don't, I, I never found Donald Trump to be incredibly intelligent. I think he was just manipulated by smarter people. Um, because I just don't think he's just smart enough. He's smart enough to be a racist, but I just don't know if he's smart enough to know how to really understand it and enact it. But so many people were used on this this day, this insurrection that went down. And Trump, would you say he's more of a classist or a racist or a combination of both? Well, I think there's a combination of both. But I also think, you know, part of your comment, which was not a question, is very it's fascinating to interrogate, which is, uh, intelligence, because I think that there could be multiple kinds of intelligence, right? So there could be the kind of academic intelligence, but there is there is a a, a savant status ability of his to read crowds, hmm. which a lot of the smarter people in the Republican Party couldn't do as well. Right. the The crowd, uh, the crowd in that that Donald Trump saw. Republicans kept acting like they didn't see it. Mm. They, they saw the racists. Yeah. They just told them, yeah, you, 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 we just need your votes. Don't say anything. We don't really like you like that. <laughs> we need to keep you riled up. 
We don't mind you being racist and voting for us, but we are not going to be on the front lines. And uh, Trump says, no, I see these people. So there's something in that. And that's, he's not a well-read man. He is not, if he gave him an IQ test, I don't think he would score highly on it. But there is an ability to, you know, that the demagogue always has. Stand before the roaring mob and to read it. Yeah. That's interesting because, you know, knowing and watching you on television and, and having read your last book, uh, I, I know that you don't just come off the top of your head to be controversial. Um, I think when I, and I'm, I'm going to stroke you a little bit here, Charles, so I hope you're not uncomfortable. Sure. But no, one of the things that I like about you is that even though your thoughts aren't premeditated, a lot of your thoughts are genuine and they come from uh, uh, your experiences, your personal experiences. Not all of us can put yeah. that on paper. I can't put that on paper. I, I, I'm a screenwriter. I can write I can write movies and do all those things. But to put those deep thoughts the way you you couch them, I think is so phenomenal. And I'm excited about finishing this book because I know you're well, you you can't do what I, I can do. I can't do what you can do. I can't make up things. Yeah. Right. So I like the idea that the brilliant people, I, I think like people who can like just create a world mm-hmm. and write it down and, and make it work. I'm like, that's genius. I can't do that. But mm-hmm. if I see something or I experience something, I can contextualize that and write that. Yeah. Well, I think that your observations are, are, are on point. And, and, and it's not a matter whether I agree with them or disagree with them. I think as a black man, I've experienced a lot of what you have experienced. And it's, mm-hmm. it, we've gotten to a point right now where we have found our power. I think 2020, and, and, I, and I believe you may be discussing this in your book, we found our power because for so long we felt that our vote did not count. And people like Stacey Abrams and others who have said, hey, listen, Here's why your vote counts. She broke it down to make us understand that you have power and now you can utilize it and make a difference. Well, I think it gave us a peek into our power, meaning, meaning, you know, what I advocate in this book is to reverse the great migration, concentrate your political power in the southern states where you're already a large percentage of the population, somewhere between 25, 33, to the Mississippi, 34 percent of the population. And that can change the dynamic of power. Mm. That happened here in Georgia. On the one hand, with what you were talking about, amazing organizing, primarily by people like Stacey Abrams, who's a genius and, and now a Nobel laureate for her work. Uh, no, no, not a Nobel nominee. nominee right. Not a laureate yet, but a nominee. Uh, but on the other hand, it was the reverse migration. They had more black bodies to organize. See, that was interesting. I wanted to talk to you about that because you're, you're advocating uh, reverse migration um, right. because as a black man that grew up in California and lived mostly in the North, we always gave up on the South. It's like, right. oh, okay, they're, just, they're outnumbered. But that, has, that demographic has changed in, in South Carolina and in Georgia and so on and so forth. It's just been a matter it's of mobilizing those me. individuals. It's fascinating for me to hear someone from California where black people are 5% of the population say that you're outnumbered in the South where you're 25 to 30% of the population. That's, that's, our, that's our perception. Well, I think we have to change that because, you know, 5% of the population in California, that means you have no political power. You can't elect a senator, representative. You know, they, they gave you representatives because they kind of made a district specifically so you could definitely have a couple of districts. Mm-hmm. That's it. You can't elect the senator, you can't elect the governor. 
only what white people say you can have is what you can have. That's a good point. Right? There are 1,200 majority black cities in America. 90% of them are in the South. Mm. There's not a single, not one single majority black city in the entire state of California. That's true. There are majority black areas. I'm, I'm, I'm almost thinking, uh, Charles, along the lines of, as, a, as opposed to being a conservative and, and being a liberal. I, I, I think, obviously, California uh, votes on a liberal, uh, from a liberal vantage point. Whereas, mostly in the South, you know, obviously, it's going to be red country. And I think that's where yeah. I'm kind of coming from. But you do make a valid point because uh, <laughs> living but, all but, my but, life, but you're exactly that, right. But even in that context, even in that context, you have uh, hyper policing that is generally aimed at black people mm-hmm. that develop in these uh, otherwise liberal states. Right. So right. you get you get the America gets SWAT teams because of California's response to the black hair. Right. That's where SWAT teams come from. So where do we go from here, yeah, man? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, how do how do we get where we need to go? Because we got a long way to go. I mean, this this last election, twenty twenty, was just uh, just the beginning of the iceberg. It's a slow moving coup as, when, as far as us trying to mobilize our power. In my opinion, I, I mean I, that is the entire thrust of my book. My my theory is that it is state power. That that half of this power in the United States is reserved for the states. The Constitution specifically says that all powers not specifically given to the federal government are reserved for the states. Uh, election access, ballot access, is a state issue. States run elections, yeah. not the federal government. If you look, if you're looking at uh, voter suppression, you want to get rid of it. You do it at the state level. Mm-hmm. Mass incarceration, big issue for Black people. Well, the federal government. Uh, only incarcerates about uh, 25, 30% of all uh, incarcerated people in this country. The vast majority, the entire rest of that is state and local uh, local incarceration. You want to get rid of mass incarceration? You do it at the state level. Mm. Okay. If you want to deal with uh, um, uh, the, the criminal justice system, very few of you are going to argue a case before a federal judge or the Supreme Court. But you will go down to your local courthouse and have to deal with that ticket. Yep. <laughs> you deal with that on a, on a local and state level. If you want to deal with a health policy, educational policy, the state or the textbooks. Yeah. If you don't think that black history is being properly acknowledged in the textbooks that your children are bringing home, there's nothing you can do about that in California. Wow. But there is something you can do about it if you take over a state. Charles Blow, the devil you know, a black power manifesto. I have to say, man, I mean, I could talk to you for hours because I just really think that you're uh, one of those kind of people that can influence generations, your books. Um, Thank you. Your, your ability to communicate with your words, I think, are genius. And I think if we had more Charles Blows out there, man, I think we'll be well on our way to really recognizing our power, the uh, to recognize the fact that change can be made and we can be the ones making that change. So I just want to say, man, it's an honor talking to you, brother. It really is. Thank and, you. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. And I'm going to finish this book. Uh, I'm going to be done with it by so this much. weekend. <laughs> All right. Charles Blow. Thank you, sir. All right. All right. Thank bye-bye. you. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Russ Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and give us a rating and let everyone in your circle know about the Russ Podcast. We'll be dropping Russ's rants occasionally, so make sure you check that out. And a new episode each week. Check me out during the weekday mornings on the Russ Parr Morning Show, syndicated nationally. Make sure you follow us on all socials at Russ Parr Show. Thanks again, y'all.